Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hello, and welcome to another episode of BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. I'm Todd Kinney, National Relationship Director with BDO's Private Equity Practice based here in New York City. Really thrilled to have uh, two special guests uh, here with me today, and we're going to be discussing investment opportunities and value creation in the tech sector. First, I'd like to introduce Drew Myers, who's a partner at Seaport Capital. And second, I'd like to introduce Ryan Ziegler, who's a general partner at Edison Partners. Thanks for joining the program, guys. We're looking forward to hearing your insights. Yeah, thanks for having us. Awesome. All right, let's get right into it. Uh, Drew, maybe you could tell us about your role at Seaport Capital as well as your uh, personal approach to uh, sourcing and analyzing investment opportunities. Yeah, thanks, Todd. Um, Seaport has been around for over 20 years now, uh, investing in the smaller end of the middle market across software and tech-enabled services, communications, uh, some business services and media. We're currently investing out of our fifth fund, um, and typically we're backing founders or families who are looking for a value-added partner um, to help them, you know, build their businesses and, and grow their businesses, both or you know, either organically, inorganically, and or sometimes a combination of both. Um, we, you know, from a sourcing perspective, we we really benefit from the fact that we have been in those uh, sectors for so long. We have a pretty well-developed network, and, and we've leveraged that to source both proprietary and what I would consider kind of limited processes uh, that we've participated in over the years. And so it's it's really been a combination of, of that, you know, getting known in the marketplace for where we focus. Um, you know, as far as structuring goes, we tend to be control investors, um, you know, and just depending on the situation, we'll, we'll structure the investment as, as appropriate. So that, that's kind of us in a nutshell. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, Ryan, maybe you could take us through your uh, your role at Edison and uh, additionally touch on some of the key areas of focus for your firm. Sure. Um, this year is our 33rd year in uh, business at uh, Edison. Uh, excited and grateful to be in this business. We have 11 partners, and that's kind of unique relative to the size of our firm. And I'll expand on that. We're in our ninth fund, $365 million, and we like to back customer-funded businesses with growth capital opportunities, typically verticalized software companies, B2B, tech-enabled services. Sometimes we'll dip our toe into consumer opportunities when we have deep domain and really excited about the opportunity. Uh, but it really all comes down to people. We think it's magical when entrepreneurs figure out how to customer fund their business. They get to a certain level of scale, and they need help, frankly, to professionalize it. So that is a good relationship and partnership for, uh, for Edison. So uh, a few funds back, what we figured out is, you know, listen, uh, money is fungible and table stakes. And we wanted to build the scaffolding around how to really partner up with entrepreneurs, help them on the go-to-market product, FP&A and ops. Together, we call that the gearbox. And as product, we call that the Edison Edge. So what we did is uh, bring in a bunch of world-class operators as part of our partnership. Half of them have 15 to 20 years of investment experience, including myself. Half of them have 15 and 20 years operating experience. They've built software businesses from zero to $100 million a couple times over. So you get a team integrated approach. With that said, we are minority investors. So it's a bit of a pool model where we're looking for entrepreneurs to pull us in to help professionalize their company. Usually you can get to five to 10 million in sales. We want to scale them to 50 to 100 million. So we help them do that. 
Excellent. Well, I appreciate the background from both of you guys. So I'm curious, guys, what are some of the types of software or tech-enabled services investments that you're, uh, you've been seeing out there? Drew, I guess I'll throw this one to you first and then let Ryan chime in. Yeah, it, uh, it sounds like uh, Ryan and I actually come at software in, in a, a bit of the same way. You know, we, we tend to look for opportunities in vertical-oriented applications uh, where we think that there's meaningful market opportunity, but for whatever reason, the business hasn't been able to, to, to fully exploit uh, the opportunity. You, you know, from our, from our perspective, the company has a viable product. You know, there's some level of market acceptance, but again, for whatever reason, whether it's because they've been so product focused that they haven't really transitioned to the business building around sales and marketing, um, we try to, you know, move in, partner with them and uh, help them kind of advance to the next level. So, you know, we're not taking early stage tech risk um, in any way, shape or form. Um, And we've not made an announcement on it yet, but we recently just uh, invested in a business that is a software application uh, specifically focused at this point in the beverage distribution industry. And they do route accounting, warehouse management um, and and other functions for, for those businesses. And it has these exact attributes. It's a great product. It's uh, it's you know has some level of adoption with some you know logos that you'd certainly recognize. But we think that they have not spent nearly enough as, uh, time focused on sales and marketing. And and you know it's one of the things we've done really well with companies over the years. Help them start developing that. Yeah. Um, in terms of tech enabled services, we've been spending a lot of time around intelligent transportation systems. Uh, a lot of focus in and around that. You know, you know, traffic information and data services around that vertical. There's just so much more of a focus on it, both from DOTs and municipalities, just facing a, a, a lot of the challenges that they do with their growing populations. Uh, we recently acquired a business called All Traffic Data, which is squarely focused in that area, and, and we're excited about the prospects for that one. Awesome. What are you seeing, Ryan? So the way we're matrixed at Edison is um, we have this Edison Edge with sort of a horizontal capability. We go to market, um, though, by vertical. I lead our enterprise software practice, and we also have a healthcare, IT, and fintech uh, practice with each partner and a team leading it. So let me just kind of touch on those <clears throat> three categories. I would say any private equity firm would be lying and say they aren't opportunistic. I'd say probably 25% of the time we see a great deal, we're going to run at it. Uh, with that said, we are thematically based and do a lot of research what we're looking at. Um, speaking about uh, enterprise, um, touch on a couple things. In the HR segment, um, we're deeming it workplace solutions. We're looking at things that quantify and co- coach up human potential within the workplace because there's a fundamental shift going on with both the leadership of Gen Y millennials now becoming supervisors for the first time and leading the workforce. So it's a data-driven solution uh, set that's needed to help train them up as well as analyze what's going on in, inside the, uh, the business. And you know, high productivity yields revenue, and we think the best businesses in the world are being run by sort of this next generation of workplace uh, solutions. We're also seeing just a, a, a ton of innovation happening in the supply chain, particularly around verticalized marketplaces, as well as um, sort of last mile digitization through either marketplace models or what we call transportation management solutions, TMS. Um, another interesting trend going on is <coughs> frankly, the lack of engineering talent in this country. Um, and because of that, what we're seeing is sort of a revolution of low-code and no-code systems where regular managers can, can really code through these applications 
to create automated workflow in the enterprise. And it's uh, a really exciting time uh, within that space. We also believe in um, prop tech that legacy brokers are a dying breed. With that said, there's modern brokerage solutions that agents that are becoming data powered. And it's, you know, we ultimately think that the end consumer client will win and, and solutions that aid in sort of a next generation of the brokerage model from a data perspective is interesting. Uh, touching on healthcare quickly, um, we are looking at non-clinical cost optimization solutions. We're also looking at patient engagement and medical adherence solutions. And then lastly, focus on data and analytics that work on the effectiveness of healthcare and, and solutions while reducing the cost to deliver. And then in FinTech, the two themes, there's just a uh, lot of innovation around RegTech for obvious reasons. And then there was a trend around unbundling of banks after the financial crisis, consumer confidence loss you know, on Wall Street. What we're seeing is a reemergence of digital solutions that rebundle solutions for the benefit of consumers that are accessing the capital markets as well as coming into generating wealth. Awesome. Lots of uh, exciting sectors and trends for our, uh, our listeners to consider. So let's shift gears and uh, let's talk about IPOs for a moment, as uh, this has certainly been a blockbuster uh, year for IPOs, tech IPOs at that. I guess looking forward to 2020, Ryan, I'll throw this to you first and then let uh, Drew add his commentary. What do you think will have the greatest impact on tech companies pursuing an IPO? Two points. Well, the first big one is the election. So we believe that there are actually not going to be any uh, IPOs after the election for the second half of 2020. So there's a window right now in the next six to nine months, um, frankly, to get out effectively. And then, you know, whatever happens to the election, the markets will react to it and the dust will settle. Um, the, the actual other thing that's going on that we're really excited about because it's sort of the DNA of our firm is there sort of a flight back to quality and normalcy relative to cash flow and profit? Cash is king. So there's always been a disconnect between um, private and public markets. It's been, you know, amplified with the headlines as of recently what's going on. So at Edison, we actually went back and looked at, you know, a time frame from 2011 to 2015. What were the best software tech IPOs? And, and a very interesting trend line came out of that. Of the top 20 deals that went out in terms of performance, 14 of them raised less than $125 million in capital, six of them less than $50 million, one never raised an ounce of, wow. of private equity in terms of performance. Fast forward to that to today, you look at public market performance. There's actually, and it's a small sample set, there's an inverse correlation to uh, uh, revenue to capital in meaning. The less capital that the company is raised and the higher performance is, uh, you know, performed extremely well in the public market. So you look at the ratio of, uh, you know, revenue to capital in, it speaks to capital efficiency. What we're really saying at the end of the day is gross margin, profitability, sustainable unit economics. The market is finally rationalizing. Again, you know, great businesses with sustainability, the type of things that we focus on actually, uh, you know, uh, talk to our entrepreneurs about how to build their business, you know, uh, moving forward. So it's, it's nice to see that. With that said, um, there is a dichotomy between B2B companies and B2C. B2C take a longer time to a little mature and season. We are B2B investors. And frankly, when you look at B2B versus B2C investments, they have performed exceptionally well on a comparative basis to B2C companies. Well, I thought we had some good stat guys, but it looks like the Edison folks have a speed. Uh, I guess, Drew, obviously at Seaport, your typical exit is not a, uh, a yeah. an IPO, but perhaps you want to add any uh, commentary to, to Ryan's uh, perspective? 
Thanks, Dad. And, and, you know, dovetailing on, on Ryan's comments, he's actually, you know, hit the nail on the head as far as we're concerned, just in terms of getting back to that flight to quality and in, in that concept that, you know, actually building good businesses and, and real businesses that have, you know, governance, you know, real management in place are back to fundamentals and in, in, in seeing the market kind of come back to that is refreshing, frankly, because, you know, that's what we try to invest behind. And, you know, I think we'll talk about unicorns later in the in the conversation. But the reality is for a lot of tech businesses, that's not the trajectory that they're ever going to hit or the, or the path that they're going to take. <clears throat> but there's still really good businesses out there. And, uh, you know, for us, again, the IPO markets really aren't um, a consideration set from an exit perspective. But you want to see that health in that marketplace and you want to see people paying attention to those um, uh, those factors that we we value because ultimately, you know, the valuations that people are looking at in the public markets do translate uh, to in, in some level to you know our exits ultimately. Sure. Well, I think uh, the flight to normalcy is going to be refreshing for all of us. So I appreciate both of your viewpoints. Now we'd like to take a moment for our coffee break with Aftab Jamil, partner and national leader of BDO's tech practice. Aftab is based in BDO San Jose office. Let's hear from him now. Well, thanks, Rod. Uh, hello, my name is Aftab Jamil, and I'm the global leader of BDO's technology industry practice. Today, I will be discussing the importance of partnerships between technology companies and private equity firms, and really how to make the most of these critical relationships. The $3 trillion tech industry has a multitude of exciting growth prospects. Yet developing some companies past that startup stage can sometimes prove to be a threshold that is really challenging to overcome. For high growth tech companies looking to scale quickly and sustainably, partnering with a private equity firm can sometimes be a really good option. Of course, it depends on each business's circumstances. In addition to infusing companies with uh, critical capital, PE firms can also provide market access, mentorship, access to their own business network, operational expertise and advice, and other tools that are needed to drive greater revenue and attain growth goals. Plus, uh, PE firms can help shoulder the burden of growing a new business. So in short, Partnering with a PE firm is a step towards scaling for sustained growth for tech companies. Now, technology companies and PE firms have a lot of added value to offer to each other. And a newly cultivated partnership between a tech company and a PE firm can be really exciting. However, partnership success requires effort and investments from both sides. So how can tech companies optimize their relationship with their PE partners and ensure that goals of both sides are really being met? Now, some of the best practices that I've come across, I'd uh, like to share those uh, with you today. First, define the relationship between the tech firm and the PE partner. This is crucial to ensuring an effective and productive relationship. Unfortunately, many companies often overlook this step when joining a PE firm's existing portfolio, whether it is defining titles, setting expectations, 
and transparency levels or simply assigning responsibilities, it is best to establish those parameters early and open lines of communication upfront. Otherwise, you might find yourself in a situation with the looming fear of one or both parties over-promising or under-delivering and not meeting each other's expectations. Second, um, short of your corporate governance, for younger tech companies or those with less mature board uh, models, learning to adapt from a current board governance practices to a level at which perhaps the, uh, their PE partners expect can be challenging. Nevertheless, a tech PE partnership can be a great opportunity for companies to get many of these necessary practices in place while also receiving guidance along the way. So while it may be difficult to initially seize total control or perhaps formalize the structure, doing so will help both parties deliver maximum value to each other and, and really meet those uh, growth expectations as well. Uh, third, shade the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, a good PE firm will also help um, a young company um, executives in the management team really assess every aspect of their business and point out inefficiencies and areas of improvements. This ongoing process requires a great deal of transparency and communication um, that are frequent between both parties. And while it is tempting to share only the good news with the investors, the PE partners, the board, and other stakeholders, management teams should flag every major development or risk that can potentially affect their business. Highlighting potential problems earlier on will enable companies to get help they need to address them before they really spiral into full-blown business issues. The final tip that I, uh, that I will offer today is to remember that uh, like any relationship, it is a give and take relationship. It is natural perhaps for tech companies to primarily focus on receiving the resources and, and constructive feedback and all the other help uh, from seasoned PE executives that they otherwise will not be available to them if they were to be operating on their own, tech executives may even find their universe of viable business opportunities greatly expanded. Um, but, but company executives need to remember that giving back is equally important. Tech executives are particularly knowledgeable about the triumphs and the pitfalls and the operational details of their own company, as well as the industry sector that they operate in. These insights can be hugely valuable to PE partners who may not be involved um, in a day-to-day -day management of the company, and they may very well translate those insights from management teams to, um, uh, to advice that is applicable to their other portfolio company. So learning from one company could perhaps be an idea that benefit a PE firm's entire portfolio. As I said earlier, every relationship is a two-way street and a tech and private equity partnership is no different. Looking ahead to 2020, and as your company looks to establish the, the next year, the next you know, few quarters targets and milestones, be mindful of the impact a PE partnership can have on your company. And if your company already engages in a tech PE partnership, keep, perhaps you can keep these uh, tips in mind 
uh, to sustain and retain um, your investor relationship and, and perhaps even strengthen it. Networking and maintaining corporate relationship, if that is not uh, a, you know, a strong suit for you, perhaps consider weaving that into your New Year's resolution. Good partnerships require proactive management, ongoing communication, and a clear alignment of goals between both parties. Great partnerships demand an additional level of mutual trust, accountability, and respect. The most successful relationships are those that have ambitious goals, instilled solution to work through conflicting opinions, and high performance expectations, as well as, of course, clearly defined strategies, technical steps, and resources to get there. Most importantly, though, successful tech PE partnerships create value for each other. Thank you for listening to today's Coffee Break. I'm Aftab Jamil, and I'll hand it back over to you, Todd. Thanks for your insights, Aftab. And now let's get back to our conversation with my guests, Ryan Ziegler and Drew Myers. Guys, moving on to our next topic, let's get your thoughts on the factors driving tech M&A in the year ahead. Uh, Drew, I'm going to throw this one to you first, and then we'll go to Ryan. Thanks, Todd. The, um, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about IPOs earlier, but you know, one of the things that is certainly a trend and in, in you're seeing more often are, are companies staying private longer. Um, and you know, I think part of that has been the fact that there's so much private capital chasing these opportunities now and a willingness where multiples are and, and where folks like Ryan and myself are, are willing to transact. You know, there's an attractive path for these companies, one, to stay private longer, and also when you, you know, put IPO versus M&A and what that potentially means for your company, there's really attractive paths for these companies to, to go through an M&A process or even find growth capital um, and you know, enable their business continue to grow, get the capital they need for that growth, but also find a great partner to help them uh, build the business. And all without the, call it scrutiny and, and uh, you know, public uh, display of any mistakes you may make along the way of, you know, once you've gone down the IPO, IPO path. So, you know, you've got that private capital. And, and from a PE perspective, you're seeing more and more firms actually form software practices. And I think in part it's because, you know, there's great investment uh, opportunities in companies of scale. And so for a lot of these folks that have not participated in the software boom um, historically, you, you know, they're starting to realize, look, it doesn't take a leap of faith anymore around technology. Uh, it doesn't, you don't have to wait for market adoption. There's actually really good companies out there that have already proven out. Um, and, and really these opportunities can be evaluated against this, uh, you know, the typical value creation levers that they're used to looking at in industries like consumer, healthcare, even industrials, uh, business services, et cetera. You know, so from my perspective, it, it's not surprising that, you know, the percentage of um, you know, M&A in software represented by PE continues to just expand. And at this point, is probably approximating you know, what you see in M&A by PE and just the overall market. So um, I think we'll see more of the same going forward. Lots of uh, great insight there. Thanks, Drew. Ryan, care to add anything? Yeah, 100%. Um, Drew, spot on. Um, so when you look at the industry for the last several years, there's all this talk about private 
equity overhang, deal sizes, deal fund uh, sizes, NADs all going up. And that's all true. But when you actually look at net cash flows, meaning outflows and inflows, it's a net positive in the past several years. So it's a healthy industry, even with all the uh, fanfare of what's going on in the private market place. What's more, and to the point, so the biggest primary driver, at least what we believe, the software tech M&A, is private equity for that reason. And we've actually seen it both in our deal count and you look statistically. So in 2018, there were, less, there were just under 1,500 software M&A transactions. Uh, 57% of them were led by a financial sponsor. That's flipped the, swip, the script in terms of a strategic for financial investors. There's many reasons uh, for that. And we've also seen that at Edison in terms of now 60, over 60% of our change of control transactions are financially led, meaning private equity sponsor using one of their companies as a, as a proxy or one of our companies as a platform to then consolidate. And there's many reasons for that. Um, increasing market share, they're acquiring RD for product differentiation. And what happens in scale in this business is that you actually get multiple expansion with it. So that leads to a strategy at Edison we've deemed they're really excited about and love the work of folks like Drew is we call two bites of the apple. And both for entrepreneurs as well as growth equity investors like us, we're very aligned in that we can get to a certain point of scale and we need more balance sheet strength, but we want to take liquidity off the table. So we'll you know, do that, change of control with a private equity firm. You get to stash away um, a great return across the table, reinvest back into that new business, and you have a firm like Seaport leading the next uh, wave of innovation, and we get to participate in that value creation. So we're pretty excited what's actually going on in private markets and relative to tech M&A that's driven by private equity firms. Awesome. C-Todd, sourcing yeah. already. I was <laughs> going to say, Drew, it sounds like you got a deal coming your way. So uh, I appreciate Appreciate that uh, insight, Ryan. Uh, I'll actually stay with you on the next topic. Uh, being a VC investor, I'm sure you've seen plenty of uh, successes and failures. I'm sure they're all successes, right? But uh, I, I, I guess the real question is, what are some ways to apply these lessons learned to uh, building world-class companies? Sure. Well, I have a, one of my partners jokes that, hey, you've had over 300, you're an all-star in this industry. So that gives you perspective on odds. With that said, our loss right. rate is below 15% <laughs> as a plug for us, which our investors are excited about. Right. But um, I break it down into kind of like three buckets, uh, some just thoughts on people, thoughts on governance, and then maybe one or two tactics on company building things that we've learned. Because to your point, We've seen a lot of failure, and we try to apply that moving forward to mitigate that risk in every situation. That's a benefit of where we sit sure. across the dozens and dozens of portfolio companies. So when it comes down to people, 100%, um, we're betting on the jockey and not the horse in this business. So we're looking for really unique individuals, uh, he or she, that can you know build a business to a certain level, uh, recruit um, a really interesting team around them. Um, and we actually have a CEO scorecard uh, at Edison we've sort of back-tested what it takes as a way of, as a filter, uh, to find um, the people that we want to partner with. There's obviously got to be chemistry uh, between, you know, the investment team and, and the entrepreneur in any deal. With that said, uh, two of the biggest factors we find leading to success outside of just the fundamentals of the business. Uh, one, uh, grit. We want to see some type of diversity, uh, you know, that they've, and adversity that they've um, gone through in their Career. But uh, number two is actually an interesting one, coachability and vulnerability. And if you have all the answers, that usually ends in a disaster. Right, right. So what I'm saying, though, on coachability is that we're not saying we're looking for people that are pushovers. These are strong-minded folks that are hard-charging, but they have the maturity and confidence to commu- over-communicate and ask for help along the way. And that um, 
this creates great alignment. And we also look for the mindset of one of the rich versus king. And that talks about management style and how you want to be able to push authority to where the information is. And that's the edge. And that's about building a world-class team, hiring better people than yourself um, to think the business scale. And those roles will narrow over time. On the governance side, what's really interesting, even at our stage, which is, you know, sort of between after VC and before um, private equity and the growth capital space, is um, we think it's fundamentally important that governance is in place to build a world-class board. And we believe building a world-class board means not a lot of finance people on the board, actually more independent uh, operating uh, directors that can work for the management team. You know, the role of the lead director and chairman, their interaction with setting the tone of the CEO and the team is up for success. We, we found that to work in a variety of situations. Um, they can help work through the tough issues. They can anticipate things around the quarter, help build consensus and drive alignment around the board. And we find that this leads to decisiveness and a better functioning board. Because uh, without a management team spin their will, CEOs get whipsawed, and um, you know, outside the, the shot, the, the company's executing perfectly, beating the numbers, usually folks back off a little bit. So governance is so important to value creation. Drew touched on it before in terms of performance in this market. And then um, the last thing on company-specific lessons, um, money doesn't fix problems. We actually think money can break companies in terms of capital raising. So there's got to be a really good reason you want to raise capital. With that said, you know, if the product's not ready and we press accelerate on the sales and marketing, that usually doesn't end well. So you really have to be um, resolute that there's great product market fit before you add sort of the fuel around sales and sales and marketing. And I, the last um, sort of reflection is that um, our best companies don't stay complacent. They disrupt themselves along the way in terms of product innovation. With that said, all our most successful companies started in one vertical and niche, owned it, got it predictable, got it profitable, then they expanded product line or expanded geography and they layered on. What happens with that is TAM expansion. And, you know, we can start off in a niche market and grow a massive business, just stay focused. Well, it's, it's safe to say you knocked that one out of the park. I think you, uh, you hit on a lot of lessons learned, and uh, I know our listeners will appreciate that. I'll have to listen to the recording myself and take some notes because that was, that was good stuff, Ryan. Drew, turning to you, you, uh, you happen to mention uh, tech unicorns, and uh, there certainly seems to be a lot of focus around the rise of super high-growth companies. Uh, according to my stats team, not the Edison team, but they're pretty good. Uh, there are now more than 400 of these unicorn companies valued at over a billion with a total valuation of about 1.3 trillion. Now, having said all that, as an, a, as an investor at uh, Seaport, not backing businesses like that, how do you find the ones that you feel are going to be winners? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question, Todd. Um, you know, unicorns seem to happen you know, in, in large part because there are solutions address such a void in the market that adoption happens. You know, it's an incredible pace of adoption. And by the time people really are waking up and understanding what the market opportunity is, they're so far uh, out in front of everybody else that, you know, valuations tend to skyrocket and sprint to try to keep up. And the number of unicorns have grown you know, simply because there were so many industries out there ready for that disruptive force to come through. Um, you know, but as I alluded to earlier, the, you know, the unicorn trajectory is not the fate of most of the tech businesses out there, right? And, and they're really good businesses with great solutions, um, addressing real market opportunities. And, you know, they can be 
produce nice growth and they can produce real cash flow, which is fundamentally what we care about. Um, if you can grow cash flow over time, you're going to build a valuable business and, and, and it's going to create a, generate a real return. Um, you know, a lot of the things that Ryan focused on in terms of the things that they're looking for are very similar to ours. You know, our businesses tend to be more established. They're, you know, when we think of smaller end of the middle market, we're talking three to 15 million of EBITDA. So they can be substantial businesses. But as I was saying, you know, a lot of times they've gotten, you know, we don't take that tech risk. So, you know, there's been adoption, there's a proven product. Um, and we're, but we're looking for a lot of the same elements that Ryan talked to. You know, if, if that business has been around for a while and they say they want to take it to the next level, but there's not that willingness to kind of listen to the coaching and the things that we've seen over the 50 plus, you know, investments that we've made and the, and the pattern recognition that we've developed on, on how we can help the business scale up and, and accomplish some of the goals that they want to go after, it's going to be a partnership doomed to fail. And it's just not a good fit for us. Um, we, we are not operators. We, we try to uh, put a lot of operating resources around the table too. So we will, you know, as Ryan said, you, you know, we, we're not looking for another finance mi- financial mind around the table at the board level. We're looking for somebody who knows how, you know, under, either understands the end market really well, understands the business model, um, and can be a great sounding board for our CEOs and management teams. Um, you know, what you find with the businesses that we're investing behind, you know, they're, they're smaller in nature. You can't necessarily just come in and change the playbook entirely. It's an evolution over the, over the course of our hold period. And we have to be patient enough to understand when it is time to push on, on the gas pedal and when it's maybe time to, you know, tap on the brakes and just make sure that, uh, you know, the, the business is ready for some of those next steps, whether that's acquisitions, whether that's expanding, you know, the product set or going after a new market um, with the with the solution they've created. Um, I, I liked Ryan's point, you, you know, that that software business I alluded to earlier, we're going to help it own that niche that it's addressing now. But that platform can absolutely be appropriate for other verticals as well. Um but that's, you know, it's a crawl, walk, run approach with businesses at this, you know, size and scale, especially when they've been around, you know, 10, 15, 20 years kind of doing things the same way. And they're now seeing a new opportunity in front of them or they want to go consolidate and they want to acquire. Um, it's, you know, that that takes a different mindset and it can't happen overnight. So. We try to be very patient partners. You know, the, the hold period for people has, in, in, you know, for private equity firms has started to come in a bit. We still think in that kind of five-year time frame because we know that that's likely going to take that amount of time to, to get the business where we're all going to be excited about, um, you, you know, the time to, time to exit. And if it's earlier than that, great. We'll all know it and we'll all be excited about the opportunity. But we, we really, you know, think in terms of partnering with the folks that we're backing and in, in investing in. And, and we're looking for that like-minded approach. They want the partnership. They want what we, they think we can bring to the table for them. Um, and if, if that's there, then, you know, we're, we're going to be successful. Yeah. Great stuff, man. Appreciate all that insight. Ryan, anything to, to add to Drew's commentary? The only thing I would um, add, maybe just to put a, a, a double click on, is um, <clears throat> the reason why vertical versus horizontal is important to all of us. Um, when we think about innovation curves and capital efficiency is sort of the thread this whole 
discussion, um, we typically find that the innovation curve around a verticalized business is typically four to five years versus a horizontal business, which typically is one to two years. So meaning you could be obsolete in 12 to 24 months. The implications around how fast you have to innovate, test, and take market share while building product, the, the stakes are so high. So the advantage of going to the vertical market business is a beautiful thing. You build domain, build expertise, great client relationships, and you'll have to disrupt yourself every other year, which usually translates into great outcomes for the entrepreneurs and the shareholders at the table of the funding line. Well said. It's great to get your take on the market and where it's headed, guys. So Drew Myers, Seaport Capital, Ryan Ziegler, Edison Partners, thanks so much for joining us today. Trust that uh, BDO values our relationship with, uh, with both of you guys, and it was an honor to, to have you and your firms represented on our podcast. Yeah, thanks, thank Todd. Really fun. appreciate thank it. You. Awesome. To our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, this is BDO's Private Equity Perspectives. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Perspectives podcast. For more information on how BDO supports private equity sponsors, funds, and their portfolio companies with a full spectrum of accounting, tax, and advisory services, please visit us at BDO.com. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of Private Equity Perspectives. Perspectives.